Yes, yesterday I tried to give us uh, an impression of uh, the centrality of the person of Christ in all of the Bible. He's a great theme of the Bible. If a person should ask you, what is the Bible all about? You can say it is, it is about God and man. God and man. And in Christ, you have in one person, one person who is God and man. So in Christ, the very truth and the message of the Bible is embodied. Christ. Knowing him means to live. Having him means to have life. He is the great, the central theme of the Bible. Uh, let's look up two or three verses first and then I'll read a short text. Um, but first we uh, turn to First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. And we read the verses 10 and 11. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So we see that it was Christ himself indwelling the prophets who predicted the things which were to be fulfilled by him. The Spirit of Christ within the prophets was indicating what he was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So he is the one speaking in the Old Testament through the prophets, through David, through Moses and all the other prophets. And then the Lord himself says in a summary fashion in John 5, John chapter 5, verse 39 John 5 verse 39 you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life it is these that testify about me so if you want to give in within one word the answer to the question what is the testimony of the Bible Christ the scriptures testify of him. And then we have John chapter 3, verse 35. John 3, 35. It is John the Baptist speaking. And he's saying about the Son, the Father loves the Son, and he has given 
all things into his hand. All things. Now this, of course, concerns, that's the theme of the gospel, salvation. Anything and everything and all things belonging to salvation are in his hand. So if you want to find and receive salvation, you have to go to him. You have to have him. Beside him, there is no place where to find salvation. <clears throat> uh, last month, my wife and I, we are uh, reading the Bible once a week. We meet uh, 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 an old lady. She's already 91. And for more than 10 years, we read the Bible with her. And she's also excited when we come. And we hope that she that she has broken through. We are not really sure that she has broken through to the new birth. And we were reading the story of, of Joseph lately. And reading that story again, I was reminded of that verse, salvation is in Christ's hands. We have to come to him. God commands, go to him. Go to him. If you seek life, the bread of life, go to him. And Joseph is a type of Christ. So we read in Genesis chapter 41, Genesis 41 verse 55. There is famine in Egypt. After the seven years of plenty, there came those years of famine severe famine. And then it says in verse 55, Genesis 41, 55, so when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. And thus God, he commands everybody, go to my son. And that's why we preach Christ for people to come to the Son. And by the preaching of Christ, the Father draws souls to his Son. Because only there and in him they find salvation, life, life eternal, life divine. <clears throat> uh, now uh, we turn to Matthew chapter 16. And with uh, this text we will now look and start looking more closely into the nature of Christ. Who is he? Who is Christ? Matthew chapter 16. We start from verse 13. And we read through till verse 18. Verses 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremia, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say 
that I am. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So here the question is asked as to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. The man Jesus, he looked like an ordinary Jew, he was dressed as an ordinary Jew, and he spoke as an ordinary Jew. You remember the Samaritan woman, she comes to the well, and Jesus sitting there, tired from his journeyings, and then the Lord speaks to her, and she's all astonished that you, being a Jew, speaking to me as a Samaritan woman. So she just saw in him an ordinary Jew, dressed like all other Jews were. Who is that man, Jesus? Now, he had been walking up and down the Holy Land, teaching, preaching, doing mighty works, signs, wonders. So people were then asking, who is that man, Jesus? And some said, well, he must be John the Baptist resurrected, returned from the dead, and therefore he does such miracles. Or he must be one of the prophets of old. He must be the one announced, who was announced to come before Messiah comes, Elia, the prophet of whom uh, uh, Malachi, or Malachi as you say in English, Malachi, of whom Malachi uh, prophesies that he would come before Messiah comes. And there are so many views about the identity of Jesus. Who was he? Some will say he was a, 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 reform, a reformer of the Jewish faith. Others would, would say he was a, a kind of an esoteric who introduced men into his esoteric teachings and doctrines. And others would say he was the first socialist. So many ideas. So many ideas. And others say, well, he was a prophet. A prophet. Just a prophet. But then comes the question, who do you say that I am? And uh, as it usually is, Simon Peter is the first one to answer, and he says what all the others think. And he confesses, you are the Christ. You are the one promised. Messiah. The son of the living God. Now what does this confession contain? His name is Jesus. So he is man. He is true man. And at the same time Peter, he recognizes, and you are the son of God. So you are God. You are a man, true man, and you are God, very God. And he is truly, he is true man. He had a name, a very ordinary name among Jews, Yeshua, 
for short of a long Yehoshua. And we have a namesake of him in the Old Testament, the great leader of uh, Israel as they conquered the Holy Land, Yehoshua. So that was an, a man of many Jewish boys in those days. He was, he was human, a man. And he grew up like a tender plant from a dry ground, as Jesaja uh, uh, 53 says. True man. And he lived in a time which is chronologically given very exactly. We have the dates of his life in the Gospel of Luke. He says, when such and such a governor reigned there and there, in, the so -and -so, in that year, then John the Baptist, the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist. And we know that they were born about in the same year, only a few months apart. And then in the same chapter, Luke 3, it says that Jesus was then about 30 years old. So we can exactly ident identify the time of his, the time span of his life, the first decades of uh, the first century of our era, and he lived in a and, uh, in a town which still stands today, a historical place, Nazareth. So who is truly man? who came as man into this world. And that is one of the basic tenets of the Christian faith, that Jesus is true man. And we know that the Gospel of John was written to prove, among uh, uh, other truths, that Jesus was truly man. Truly man. He, the eternal word, the creator of all things, he became flesh. Sarx egeneto, and the word sarx has no good sound in the ears of a, of a, a Bible-reading person. Flesh. In the Old Testament already, all flesh is grass. It withereth away. So he truly became man, and therefore John uses that very strong term. He became flesh. He didn't write he became man. He could have written anthropos egeneto. No, but he wrote Sarx Egeneto, flesh, to make it really clear and they really feel it. And John, he writes then later in his life, no, not so much later, but at the same time, he wrote the gospel very late, as we know. He writes that we have uh, not only seen him, but we have uh, observed him, watched him, and we have handled him, we have grasped him, and he really had flesh and bones. He was a real human being. And that was therefore so important because there were mystics around in the first century who said, well, if he was truly divine and we believe that he was divine, he cannot have become a man because flesh and all uh, uh, material things, matter, is impure. God is pure spirit and nothing else, and therefore he cannot have become truly man. And they said he was only similar to man. He seemed to be a man, and from the Greek word dokeo, to seem, they were called doketists. Well, later, they were called doketists. He only seemed to be a man. He was not truly man, but he was man. And this is so important that John, he writes in his first epistle, 
First Epistle of John, chapter 4. There he writes in verses 1 and following. Again, we have here a warning. We read a few yesterday evening already about uh, false doctrines seeping in, creeping in into the churches, stealing themselves in into the churches, destroying the faith of the elect. Therefore, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. In the flesh. Again he uses that term. And then verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, that is Jesus, the man Jesus come in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So it is an anti-Christian view that Christ was only uh, spirit and remained spirit, only seeming, seemingly was man. And today there are many esoterics who say, yes, there is a Christ spirit pervading all. But they do not believe in the historical person Jesus, who is the Christ. So that is the first part of Peter's confession. Man, the man Jesus. And that same man, Jesus, is the son of the living God. And son of God means he's God. When the, Jew, when the Jews heard that Jesus called God his father, they hated him all the more. And they decided we must kill that man because he makes himself equal to God. Calling himself son of God, he claims to be God. You have that in John 5 after healing the lame man at, at, at uh, the pool of Bethesda. So when Peter says, the son of the living God, he says, you are man, you, Jesus, the man, Jesus, you are God. Man and God in one person. And that one person, he alone, and none beside, is the Christ, the anointed one. Ho Christos, the anointed one. Masiach, or the Mashiach. The anointed one. Anointed, that means appointed by God. As of old, the high priest was anointed, that is appointed by God, to be the one and only high priest in Israel. And as prophets were anointed by God, and thus appointed by God, to be speakers who speak in his name, and as King David was anointed, and that is appointed by God to be king. And Messiah is the one appointed by God to be the one and only true mediator and priest for the salvation of men. The one and only word of God come into this world, the true prophet of God, who himself is the word of God. The anointed prophet and the anointed King, the one who is going to rule over this whole earth and thus finally to fulfill God's purpose with man. God created man to reign over this very earth. And that was never fulfilled. 
It was all spoiled by man's sin. But God is not coming back on his purpose. So he's going to fulfill that purpose in the anointed king, Jesus. And that's what Peter confesses. He is the Christ. Now we have to see that there are those two most basic truths about the identity of Jesus, his deity or divinity, if you prefer, and his humanity, true God, true man. But then thirdly, thirdly, his sinlessness. True man, true God, and sinless. And all three, all three truths together make him the one and only by God appointed saviour of man. If he were a perfect man, a sinless man, and if he had died for our, uh, if he had died for how many sins could he have atoned if he had been only man? Or for, for the sins of how many persons could he have atoned? Just for one. One man for one man. And no more. So he necessarily must be God. God at the same time a man, one person, two natures. But even if we would confess, yes, he's true God, he's true man, but if he had not been sinless, then he would have died only for his own sin and sins. And therefore these three truths have again and again been attacked. His deity, his humanity, his sinlessness. And we have to defend these truths. We have to see them for ourselves in the Bible, hold fast to those truths, and teach them and preach them. True God, true man, and he is sinless. And then uh, Matthew chapter 16 Jesus in his answer in verse 17 to Peter says, Matthew 16, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jona, son of Jonah, that means, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And we heard that yesterday already. A natural man, he cannot know and recognize Jesus for who he is. It is the, the work, it is the work of the revealing power of God. And how does the Father reveal the identity of his Son to men, as he did it to Peter and to the other disciples? Of course, he said through the Holy Spirit, and that is true through the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus himself, he announced, himself, he announced that when he left the disciples, he would then send the Spirit. And the Spirit would come and convict the world, it says, convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. 
the Holy Spirit would teach men of their sin, who they are in their sin before God, of righteousness, namely that Jesus is the righteous one who has gone back to the Father. That perfect man is the righteous one who is exalted to the right hand of God. So it is the Holy Spirit teaching us who Jesus really was. Who we are in sin and, how he, and who he was and is. But how does the Holy Spirit teach us? By visions, by dreams, by inspiration, personal direct inspiration? No, by the word, by the gospel. And again, I use a term Luther has coined. He, Luther, he said, der Heilige Geist fährt auf dem Wagen des Wortes. The Holy Spirit rides on the, the, the chariot of the word. This is how the Holy Spirit comes, with the word. So it's preaching Christ teaching people who Christ is. And this is uh, 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 the, the uh, means, the word which the Holy Spirit uses to teach men who Christ is. So that we, with Peter, ca can confess Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And with all that that means. And all, and then Jesus continues and says, and everybody who has that knowledge and can confess with Peter, thou art the son of the living God, those he takes, the builder of the church, as living stones and puts them all together into his house, the house of God, the church. And Peter, he of course never forgot what the Lord here had said, and he uh, comes back to it in his first epistle. In his first epistle. First Peter, chapter 2. In verse 3, he says that you have tasted the kindness of the Lord... He speaks to such who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And then he tells them something about their biography, how that came about. Verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, And this is what Peter had experienced and this is what everybody who hears the gospel and believes what happens with him. The Lord takes him and he is built up with all other believers into that spiritual house of God for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And that church the church which the Lord Jesus Christ builds the gates of Hades, that is the nether world, that is the world of the dead, from whence there is no return, and it stands for the power of, of darkness, for the power of, of the one who has, uh, who has uh, the authority over death, Satan. And all powers of darkness cannot overcome the church of God. 
It will not happen. It is impossible. Good, we are now uh, seeing um, in, a, in a summary what uh, makes up the, the identity of Christ, his true humanity, his deity, and his sinlessness. Now, let's uh, look a little bit more closely into the deity, the divinity of Christ. Now, the um, doctrine of redemption, it is really the doctrine of redemption which distinguishes the Bible from all other so-called holy books of other religions. There is no doctrine of redemption in Islam, in the Quran. There is no true doctrine of redemption in the manifold holy books of Hinduism. Neither is there in Buddhism. Only the Bible gives man that doctrine which, by believing it, he will be saved. The doctrine of the great Redeemer who has wrought redemption for man lost in sin. <clears throat> and that again shows us how important it is that we know who Christ truly is. God Man sinless. Anyone who doubts only one of these truths is not a Christian. There are people who call themselves Christians, but they don't believe in the deity of Christ. They are not Christians. They may be religious people, but they are not Christians. So this true man, he must of course be true man to redeem man. That is clear. But he must be God in order to be the saviour of the world, in order to be the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And therefore Luther said rightly, wenn dieser Artikel verloren wird, sind wir nicht mehr Christen. If this article is lost, we are no more Christians. Christ is God. True God, very God. And we have to defend that truth. I'm going to quote now from a, a Lutheran conservative theologian. His name is Franz Pieper and he has uh, written an excellent systematic theology, Christliche Dogmatik. In, in the German-speaking uh, world, usually systematic theologists are called a dogmatic. That is a collection of, of Christian uh, uh, dogma. Dogmatic. Uh, he lived in the first half, or, or worked in the first half of, of the, the, the last century. And he writes, and I uh, quote from him, he writes this The doctrine of justification is founded on the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of justification is founded on the doctrine of Christ. More precisely, the doctrine of the human divine person and the human divine work of Christ. Whoever does not have Christ in his human divine person and his human divine work of reconciliation as the object of faith nullifies the doctrine of justification. And with it, Christianity itself. 
Therefore, the doctrine of Christ has with all diligence to be kept from any distortions. Now, unfortunately, this book is only in German. For those of you who know German, it's really worthwhile. You don't find it. It's no more um, available, I mean, uh, in print. It's no more in print. But you find it, um, you, you know, there is book finder and whatnot. You find any book which is around in the world, almost, almost, yeah. Now, as to the deity of Christ, let us look up three passages in the Old Testament. Just to give you examples, that already the Old Testament, in announcing the coming of Christ, not only that he would come and work, work salvation, but the, the Old Testament already speaks about his deity, his humanity, his sinlessness. It's all there already in the Old Testament. So let's uh, uh, take as the first instance Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this uh, verse contains those basic truths of, uh, of the identity of the Redeemer, that he is man and he is God. And f further truths as well. At the same time, this verse shows us that in God, there is a plurality. In God, there is a plurality. The Lord said to my Lord. David calls someone Lord. Ooh. Lord, who is with the Lord. And this verse also implies that that very person comes twice. He was here. He returned. But his returning and now being seated at the right hand of God has a terminus. Until. He's sitting until. That means he will come again. So we understand that this verse was very confusing for the Jews. And once the Lord, he asked the Jews about whom is David here speaking? Why does he, David, speak about his Lord? Let's uh, look up that um, uh, one of the instances where this ver uh, verse is quoted. It's quoted several times in the New Testament because it is so full of uh, truth about Christ. Uh, Matthew 22 Verses 41 to 46. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46.
Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? How can he be son of David, that is human, and Lord of David, that is God? How can that be? And they dared not answer, because the conclusion was so evident. They dared not answer, because they were not able. It was for them impossible to say, then the son of David is... A they couldn't pronounce it. I've experienced that many times speaking with Muslims. I've showed them a Bible verse, and the Bible verse then says, uh, opened him, uh, Mark 1 verse 1, the, the, begin, the be beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it says the Son of God. And then they started reading, Angelke, Yesu, Masi, Ibn... They, they couldn't pronounce it. Ibn Khuda, son of God. And I'm sure the Jews went the same way. Then the, the son of David is a... And they dared not ask him then any more questions. Now, let's uh, now look a little bit closer into this verse, Psalm 100, 110. One. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit. Already sitting. In the Old Testament, there is only one person in heaven who sits, and all others stand. All others in heaven stand. Only one sits, and that is God. Uh, let's turn to um, three places which show that. First Kings, First Kings, Chapter Twenty Two, Verse Nineteen. It is uh, Micah. Maybe the only true prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, beside all other false prophets. And Micah here then says, speaking to King Ahab, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. 1 Kings 22 19. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him. And then we have the book of Job. The book of Job. Or Eob, as it is in Hebrew. 
Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. Well, the Hebrew says, when they came and stood before the Lord. It is the, the, the verb amad. They came and stood before the Lord. The angels, they stand. And then we have Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 6, verses 1 and 2, in the year of King Uzziah, that means the power of Yahweh, Uzziah, in the year of Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, stood, standing, standing. Only one sits. And when then Psalm 110, 1 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit. So there is, beside God sitting, another one sitting. And that means he must be divine. He must be God. Since in heaven only God sits. No created being sits in heaven. And then we have that wonderful until. Until. A little word with so great meaning. Look it up once in, in, with a concordance in the New Testament. In German it is bees, until. And almost in every instance it has something to do with Christ coming again. Christ coming again, Christ coming again. Until, until, until. He's now sitting in heaven, enthroned in heaven. Till he comes, until he will come again. So that means he comes twice. He has been here, he has returned to heaven, he comes again. So we have now three truths which Judaism cannot take in. The first truth is that Messiah is divine. Secondly, that with God there is another person who is God. Thirdly, that Messiah comes twice. They don't believe that he was here. They will believe it, understand it when he comes again. Oh, he was here already. And we killed him. Now in this verse, I just hint at this verse because we are then, we are going to return to the great and wonderful theme which here is announced in the, in the Old Testament and which... Uh, has such a, a great weight then in the epistle uh, to the Hebrews, namely the eternal heavenly high priest, high priest according to the order not of Aaron but of Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So David's Lord is also the heavenly high priest. 
And we shall return to that uh, wonderful theme, that Christ is our heavenly high priest. <clears throat> but now we uh, turn to Zechariah chapter 12, and I hinted at uh, that verse when I said, when Jesus comes again, then the Jews will understand he was here already, and we slew him. Zechariah 12, verse 10. Now the context is, of course, the last siege of Jerusalem. I don't know how many sieges there have been. Maybe some of you know the Companion Bible. It has universalism in it. And also it has some also hyper-dispensationalism, written, by the way, by a... By a, a, a how do you say, a nachfahre, son, son, son of, of the famous, famous Heinrich Bullinger. And that Bullinger, that English Bullinger, uh, belongs really to the family of Heinrich Bullinger, and he has written the Companion Bible. And in the Companion Bible, he, he, he lists all the sieges of Jerusalem. Now, this is the last siege of Jerusalem, and the last siege, and for the Jews, it seems this is the end. But then the Christ comes and intervenes. And then it says in verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now here again we see we can only see and know Christ by the spirit. Here we have it again. I will pour out the Spirit on them so that they will look. That makes them looking and seeing. And then it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who is me? They will look on me. Who is that me? How can we know? How do we find out? It's always the same answer. Context. And in this chapter, it's always Yahweh speaking. Always Yahweh speaking. 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. Thus declares Yahweh, and so on. So it is always Yahweh speaking, and I will pour out, and of course none but God himself can pour out the Spirit of God. No created being can do anything with God. Only God can act with God, do something with God. So God the Father pours out God the Holy Spirit. Or God the Son pours out the Holy Spirit. John 16, 15 and 16 both said that the Son sent the Spirit, the Father sent the Spirit. The Father and Son sent the Spirit. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications so that they will look on me whom they pierced. And then they will understand the one whom we pierced, whom we declared to be accursed of God is, and this is the unpronounceable name, God, our God. Yahweh. 
And that again shows us already the Old Testament declares that God becomes man so that he can be pierced by sinners. Now when they realize that, they will break down completely. And first they will think, now everything is lost. He was here to save us and we killed him. And we think everything is lost. And they will think it is like uh, the only son you have and he has died and then everything is lost. And thus, uh, therefore the text continues. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an, for an only son and weep bitterly. Dead, died, killed, gone. Gone. But then chapter 13, first we have a... a an enumeration of all the various families who mourn together. And then in chapter 13, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and impurity. And then they will understand, the one whom we killed, our own God and Lord, his death was for our salvation. So we have forgiveness for that very sin. We can hardly imagine how, that, how they, they, they will break forth in praise of that great and glorious God who became man, true man, true God, to suffer for us, to die for us. We killed him, and by that means, God purifies us from all our sins. Yeah. So this is what will happen when finally Israel recognizes him. Jesus. Yeshua. Yeshua. He is our God and Savior. So that was the second the second um, instance of the Old Testament. And then in chapter um, Zechariah 13, we have a third. I have chosen uh, uh, this chapter 13 because it's not so, so well known, but here we have a very interesting, again, a very interesting uh, uh, pointer to uh, the deity of Christ. But it is somewhat hidden. But, but it's, it's, it's not, it's, no, it's not hidden. But uh, it, you don't see it so easily, maybe. That's chapter 13, verse 7. Chapter 13, verse 7. Away goes sword against my shepherd and against the man my associate declares, the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand. <laughs> oh, it says against the little ones. It's not against, but I will turn my hand to the little ones and, and collect them again. That's what the, the text intends. And that's what the Lord did after his resurrection. They were all scattered, but then he came and he collected them again. <laughs> his hand brought them together again. Otherwise, they would have remained scattered. But this is not our theme now. But this verse uh, is about Christ. How do we know? How do we know that this verse speaks about Christ? We must prove it. 
It won't do just to make bold statements without proving them. <laughs> well, Christ quotes these words in the ears of the very ones who then are scattered. And he announced that you will all be scattered this night. Uh, and that's in Matthew uh, 26, isn't it? Or is it 27? No, it must be 26. Twenty-six, verse thirty-one. Matthew twenty-six, verse thirty-one. After the supper which the Lord had institu instituted, then in verse thirty it says, Matthew twenty-six, thirty. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. So here we have the proof. Zechariah 13 speaks of the shepherd, my shepherd, Christ. And it is God striking him, yes. Yes, as Isaiah 53 says, it pleased the Lord to strike him. Well, I think the King James says to bruise him, but it is to strike him. As a, an animal, sacrificial animal, by the knife was stricken. And then it bled, till all the blood had flowed out. And thus the, it, was, it, it pleased Yahweh to strike his son. And now, here we have this term, which is somewhat uh, hidden in, in, in the translation, against the man, my associate. And here a term is used, which is only otherwise in the Old Testament used in uh, uh, Leviticus. And the Hebrew term is amit, amit, with ayin at the beginning, amit. And Amit is uh, the term uh, which the German otherwise always translate Dein Nächster. Or I think the English then says your neighbor. What is it? Uh, let's see what, what the, the New American Standard Bible says. Leviticus 5.21. Leviticus 5.21. There is no 5.21 here. Oh, this must be different from the Hebrew uh, reckoning of verse. I had to go down a little bit. Uh, uh, let's see, chapter 18, verse 10 then. Chapter eight, Leviticus 18, 10. Nineteen eleven, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to to another. Lie to another. Uh, does anyone have a German Bible here? I don't have it here with me. Yeah, nineteen elf. Dein nächster probably it is. Huh? And then nineteen fifteen. Yeah, fifteen. You shall not. Uh, 
Yeah. Okay, but it, it's um, that word, imit, neighbor, the, the authorized version also has neighbor. And the, the New American Standard by usually companion. But it is always this amit, and it occurs only in Leviticus. And it always concerns, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Where is that? That's again Leviticus 19. Yeah, here you have these old verses. I was looking in the wrong place, 18 instead of 19. So 19, 15, you shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. That is Amit. And they, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor. And here, all is this Amit. And then it doesn't occur in any more places in all of the Old Testament, except again in Zechariah 13.7. Now, a neighbor in Israel was, what was the neighbor? When, when the text says your neighbor, that was a fellow Israelite. That was not a Goy. That is a pagan, a non-Israelite. But in Israel, a fellow Israel, the one of the same family, of the same blood, and also a fellow human being. But it was an Amit. It is derived from the word Am, which means people. Of the same people, Amit. And now God, he calls someone his Amit. My Amit. That means, with God is someone who is God. Of the same nature. So again we have that truth that the shepherd, he is God, true God, and within God, God is a plurality. God is a plurality. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Strike the shepherd. Of course he was stricken and um, tortured and executed by wicked men, as Peter says. In Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Of course, men did it, but it was God acting through them. It was really God smiting the shepherd, his fellow, his neighbor, his army. Now, the New Testament, of course, much more openly declares 
the deity of Christ. Several times in the writings of the apostles he's called God, literally, directly. It is not only uh, something we can, uh, we can deduce from uh, several uh, uh, statements of the New Testament that in that case he must be God, like when he knows to read the hearts of men he must be God. John 2.25, that is of course right and proper and true to deduce. But we have statements where the uh, writers of the New Testament confess that he is God. True God. Let's uh, look up just one such instance. First Peter, uh, first John, first John 5 verse 20. First John 5 verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Uh, I'm looking at, when did I start? About ten past ten, is that okay? I think this is a, a good place then to conclude. So we are now trying to see first these three uh, basic truths as to the identity of Christ. He's God, he's man, he's sinless. We have read uh, the confession of Peter and what that implies, his confession. And we have looked into three instances in the Old Testament prophesying about Christ and there already clearly showing us that Messiah is God. True man, true God. He is our Savior. <clears throat> Let us give thanks together. Yes, we worship the eternal God from the beginning, without beginning, having given beginning to all things, unchangeable, holy, faithful, gracious and just. God our Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son our Saviour. And we thank you again that you have given us your word and how we worship thee, the eternal Son of God, how you worked and how you, in the prophets, spoke through them of your coming and of your life, of your suffering and of your coming glory. And we thank you that you have enlightened us by the your spirit through the word that we could know you and that we know and confess that you are Jesus the son of the living God and how thankful we are that you have drawn us and called us and that you are building us all up into this 
new living house of God. And you have called us to be priests, to sacrifice, spiritual sacrifices, well-pleasing to you through your Son. So we commit ourselves into your hands for the coming hours of this day. Keep us in the simplicity of the faith. Keep us in the truth of your word. Help us that we can encourage each other to faithfulness, to endurance, and also to courage. To stand by thy truth and to confess your truth before men. We thank you that you are with us. Amen.